we all drank out the same canteen, drank out the same water cup. And there was a guy from Alabama who made the statement, we need each other over here for survival. But when I came, when I get back home, he can't, couldn't come to my house. So that kind of, I had a different feeling about him, but what he said was true. Jerry Warren had experienced racial prejudice throughout his young life, but this time it really stung because it came from his men in Vietnam, men that he led on the field of battle. Jerry is a natural leader. The men who trained him recognized that before Jerry was sent off to a place he didn't want to be. Nonetheless, he quickly made sergeant and went through some of the worst the war in Vietnam had to offer. Jerry is black. All the men under his command were white. They functioned very much like a band of brothers. They had to to survive. But hidden within was a racial reality of the time that unexpectedly stunned the young sergeant. Jerry Warren was badly wounded in Vietnam, came home with a purple heart, two bronze stars, and the scars of war that he still deals with today. Jerry is also a strong advocate for his fellow vets. He played a major role in the creation of what's called the Veterans Peace Garden in Chicago's Westside Austin neighborhood. He and I got together there back in October to talk war and peace and the intersection of race. This is a peace garden, right? Isn't that what you call it? Uh, it's the Austin Neighborhood Peace Garden. Yes, it is. And you have you were instrumental in getting that going. I was instrumental, and in, after it got started, instrumental in getting the veteran groups in to participate in the ongoing of what all of the things that's happening in the garden. Yes. What what do you do on a regular basis here? Uh, well, throughout the year, they have all kinds of uh, uh, little veterans group veteran entertainment they go out to a senior building and try to participate help veterans is this sometimes just a place where you can come and contemplate and just sit yeah, that's what it is it's the veteran peace guide you come here to sit back relax clear your mind you know because there's a lot of and you know what actually the building there next door that's my dream is to obtain that building and maybe get a playroom where veterans can come and just just hang out, get information out to other veterans and senior homes and stuff like that. There are a lot of veterans in this neighborhood that could use something like that. We have over 4,000 and some veterans here in the Austin area. We need something like that. We need a post here. It's not, they have to go a long ways in order to get uh, something like that. In this, this is Jerry, Jerry Warren's new cause then, right? That's my new cause. That's what I'm working hard on. I want to do something all out for veterans. Okay, let me walk you back in time. Mm -hmm. 1966, you graduate from high school in Mississippi. Yes, I did. You come north to Chicago. Yes. And you get a draft notice. I got a draft notice. And you don't want to go. I don't want to go because I know that I had some friends from high school. They headed straight to Vietnam. My, at the time, my wife, uh, at that time my girlfriend was pregnant. So I said, oh, I'm get married. I won't have to go. So I got drafted. I tried to delay the draft by, you know, just telling them that, well, I'm going to transfer it to Illinois. And they sent me another notice that, well, uh, you have to report to uh, Jackson, Mississippi for the local board 30. I told them, I said, well, no, I'm gonna, I don't want to do that. I want to transfer it back again. 
they sent me another letter telling me that you are to report to Jackson, Mississippi on July 3rd, 1967, and no changes. So that's what I did. I reported. Did you believe that you had a marriage deferment? I thought I did. I uh, I thought by being married, because I, I had a brother that I was next to, uh, he went in down to the local board, and he was married, and they told him, well, you you don't have to go in. So I thought uh, that by me getting married, that would kind of... And having a family. Yes. And th- that would exempt you from, ah, no, it didn't work. No, it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> no, it didn't work, because what happened is, uh, when I got there, uh, they said, well... They had three of us in the line there, and they say, uh, we'd like for you to step forward to be inducted into the United States Army. So I didn't step forward. I stayed back there for a while. I got to thinking, I said, well, if I don't go in, I go to jail. I can't take care of my wife and the baby. So I said, uh-uh. So finally, I stepped forward. The guy that was in charge, he finally looked at me, he said, young man, he said, I'm glad you did that. I said, well, what if I hadn't stepped forward? He said, we took somebody here to jail this morning. <laughs> and that was a couple of days uh, with the thing with Muhammad Ali. He had, uh, down in Houston, he had went to jail down there too, got into some trouble. So I went. And they had told me to just bring enough clothes to last overnight. And man, I thought I was going to be coming back home. I thought I was coming back home. But it didn't happen. Uh, I was on the plane headed to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and that was... That was that was a, that was a tough time. Tears, yeah. tears coming down my. Oh, Yo, you were crying on the plane. I tears came down my eyes, man. I I hadn't cried in I don't know when, but tears was coming out of my eyes because I was, I thought I was gonna go back home and get a chance to say goodbye to my wife, and but no, I was gone. And did you sense that this meant you were going to Vietnam? I knew eventually. They said that everybody that was drafted during the time usually go if you was. Uh, if you were drafted, you would go and head straight to Vietnam. So I kind of figured that, I, yeah, eventually I was going to go to Vietnam. So what I did is I went to uh, basic training, and I to delay my trip from Vietnam, I decided to go to leadership prep school. And it did. It delayed me for another six weeks. That's, you know. Well, you bought six weeks of time. I bought six weeks of time. Except... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone at leadership school recognized that Jerry Warren had leadership skills. Exactly. And so exactly. you were bound, well, you became a sergeant fairly quickly. I became sergeant very quickly. I got to Vietnam. I got with a guy from uh, Houston. He saw some leadership qualities in me. I think and he came over and said, look, man, he said, if you stick with me, I'm going to show you the ropes. He said, because it takes a long time for them to replace somebody in the field. So I stuck with that guy like glue. And shown us when he left, he recommended me to take his spot till they get a replacement. And I were the replacement because I, I think I did a great job uh, during there. And they didn't never send anybody for anybody else. It's about six weeks after that, I were sergeant five. Yeah, so it was hand in glove. It just kind of fit. For it you. just everything just worked out just fine. Did you change your opinion of yourself and the fact that you could lead? You didn't. Did you have less doubt about your ability to lead? I never had any doubt about my ability to lead. It's just that I knew people were dying and getting killed, and I didn't want to get killed, and I didn't want my my guys to get killed. So I was all in. Whether it be gung-ho or whatever, I was a straight-up soldier. I made up my mind. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to be in this thing for two years, and I'm going to make the best out of it that I can. So I just became a 
hard soldier. Gung ho. Gung ho. You're commanding a unit, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And of uh, half tracks is. It, uh, it was on a duster, uh, twin forties. Our duster was a weapon. It was a, like a tank. Got a. Uh, the body part of it was made out of a like the M40A1 tank, but the top it had a turret on the top that goes 360 degrees around. It's been with two barrels, two guys that fired 240 rounds per minute. You got the stripes. You're the commander. Mm -hmm. You're African American. Yeah. And all the guys under your command are white guys. All of them. And you're are from white Mississippi. Guys. Yeah, I'm from Mississippi. All these guys are white. They treated me so nice until I say, well, you know what? I saw all these years I've been wrong about white people's I think. They just treated me so nice until finally one day I decided to go out to uh, the war wagon and I went to open the door and they were in there. They was talking. They said, well, if you was back home, would, you, would Sergeant Warren come to your house? It was, there was mixed, mixed feelings about it. Guy from uh, Minnesota say, if I was back home, yeah, Sergeant Warren, he's all right. He could come to my house. Beckford Thomason, he was my driver. He says, yo, I got, I would have no problem with him coming to my house. But he made the sad mistake. He said because he's not like the rest of them. Now that one I did not like. That lit your flame. That kind of lit my flame. It lit my flame so bad until I said, well, I'm gonna kill every one of them. I reached for the door to open it and put my M16 on automatic, and I was just that angry I was going to shoot them all. Then a voice came from nowhere, says, don't do that. And I couldn't explain to you until this day where that voice or what that voice were. He said, don't do that. As a matter of fact, it frightened me because I jumped around and I looked and all I saw, and there was no wind. But it looked like something was blowing the weeds down and it went on like a big path. So I put my M16 down and went in the bunker, stopped back writing letters. Those guys don't know till this day. They, they still they don't, don't know. know. They, they don't know. They don't know I heard them, no. I never told them. It didn't matter anymore. Well, how did you bring your temperature down? When that voice, I heard that voice said, don't do that. And I, that was, I was a changed man. Uh, you know, that's why I believe that there is a God. I just, it just, I just was at that place at that moment and that voice came, and that voice did something to me. It changed me. And I didn't have no hatred in my heart. You know, I, I had only love in my heart. Uh, there were no subsequent issues with your guys, were there? Oh, no. You still worked as a team? We still worked as a team. I probably didn't trust some of them as much as I did before. Because, you know, we all drank out the same canteen, drank out the same water cup. And there was a guy from Alabama who made the statement, we need each other over here for survival. But when I came, when I get back home, he can't, couldn't come to my house. So that kind of, I had a different feeling about him. But what he said was true. But what really made you angry was the the line that Warren's okay, he's not like the he's rest of them. He's not like the rest of them. I didn't like that at all. I didn't like that because I'm okay, but my my sisters and brothers of my other friends and stuff like that, they, they may not be okay. Did, so. Didn't you feel like you wanted to talk to him at some point and straighten him out? Yeah. That was a time when I, I really wanted to. 
But you know, the voice, the voice, I'm back to the voice again. I was so free with that voice, with that voice that said, don't do that. And I was okay with it. Inner conscience or divine intervention or divine whatever it was. Divine intervention, yes. It worked. It, yeah, it worked. And and I guess it has a lot to do with me not even trying to get in touch with any of the guys that was I was in service with. There were several of them that was really nice, and they comments were nice, but I just say I ain't going to be positive. There was an instance in which you demonstrated your courage when there was a, um, a cable attached to a battery. Yeah. And tell, tell me about that. My, I had my guys, they was cleaning the battery and cleaning off the, uh, the, the track. And they messed around and they put the battery on the wrong post. At the time, my boss, which was an E6 at the time, he was there. When they put it on the wrong post, they took off and started running. They jumped off the track, started running. I looked up and I see the, the battery raising up, puffing up like it was going to explode. So I immediately, I jumped up there on the track, grabbed the post, unhooked it, and got out. And they was laying on the ground. I said, a bunch of wussies. <laughs> but as I kept walking, I got to thinking... Jerry, what did you just I do? I said, damn, what did I do? <laughs> you know, I, I got to thinking, I said, now, man, what would have happened if that stuff had blown up and, and blow, blew me up? It was just a reaction that I, I it, it just, if I had. Well, a, you, you you won some respect. Oh, I won a whole lot of respect because they, they was looking at me with their mouth. Wow, Superman. Wow, this guy's tough. Yeah. Another incident I, uh, uh, that happened now, and it happened because I didn't go to training at Fort Bliss on the duster. I was put on the duster once I got there. I took heavy artillery training with a 106 recorder's rifle. But when I got to Vietnam, they didn't need me for that, so they put me on the duster. So I got on the duster. These guys up there messing around with the guns and stuff, I had, did a little training on it. These guys messed with a breech block. Once you fire the weapon, you have to clean it. These guys was up there cleaning on the breeze block all day. They couldn't get the breeze block to go in. And I said, I said, oh my God, what if we get hit? Here it is half of the day now. They still messing with it, trying to get it in. So I get angry. I jumped up on the track. I said, and pushed one of the guys out of the way. I say, you guys don't know what the heck you're doing. I grabbed a breeze block, shook it like that and it went right in <laughs> and they again they were looking at me like <gasps> and I got all walked on down a little bit and I'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I, you know it just was it just happened I didn't know you're an, I didn't, an I didn't instinctive know, reactor uh, instinct reactive I did not know that brief block was going to go in that easy for me but I guess the, the strength that I had when I was doing it because I was angry it's adrenaline we're working. Yeah, it was adrenaline, and I just and pushed it, and it went straight in. They couldn't believe it. Not a good eye, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I never told them. Right, yeah. But they thought I was a hero. They thought I was this great, so they loved it. Well, you know, another instance when somebody thought you were a hero 
happened in March of 68, you're in Doctow, and there's a lieutenant colonel who is badly wounded, and you bring your guys in. I brought my guys in with the dusters, we leveled the place, I put a... a tourniquet? A tourniquet on his leg, and I went to 71st and back, played cool to see him. He told me, he said, thank you, Sarge. He said, he took my name, took my rank and all that, serial number. He said, I'm going to put you in for the Congressional Medal of Honor. We were sitting there talking. He said, but you, see, you're not going to get it. He says to you. He says to me. I'm going to submit it, but you're not going to get it. That's what he said. Okay. Then he says, you're not going to get it because of the color of your skin. I looked at him, and he said, if you tell anybody else that I told you that, he said, I'm going to deny it. Why would he say that, unless he believed it to be true? Lieutenant Colonel Stensire. I remember, never forget the name. I, that's what he told me. I never heard anything else from him. So, Do you think you were deserving? I think I was a, a good soldier. I think I, 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 I did a lot of things that was crazy, like because I was very protected of a man, because I wanted to keep them alive. Well, I think I think that, yeah, I think I could have been, I deserved it, so, but I didn't look at it like that. I, just, I came over there to do the best I could for a year, for the time I was there, and go home. All I wanted to do was spend my time and go home. The next day after this incident, you are wounded. I think it was the next day? Uh, no, it, well, it might have been, it was close to uh, the next day or the next two or three days. I got hit with a shrapnel from a 122 millimeter rocket and, and the way I got hit was because we was in a fire battle at, up at Docto. We was getting incoming rounds and stuff like that so so what I did I decided that I didn't like the way one of the guys PFC Mueller was loading the guns. I didn't like the way I didn't think he was loading the gun fast enough so I got up and pushed him out the way and I started loading the gun. As soon as I did it Something hit me like somebody had punched me in the shoulder. And I, I I didn't have any feeling in my right shoulder at all. So I jumped on off the track, and they was telling me, Hey, you've been hit. You've been hit. Go to the bunker. Go to the bunker. So finally, somebody from the other unit came and kind of led me to the bunker. But when I got to the bunker, all I could see was the shrabbles. My T-shirt, uh, my fatigue jacket all wrinkled up there and I was scared to look. So finally when I decided to look, uh, I see nothing down in there but a big hole and I saw my muscles from my arm and a hole in that just jumping. I said, oh my God. So they take me to 71st and back and I get there. They had gave me some morphine shots to kind of kill the pain. This guy who was in charge there at 71st and back came in and looked. Said, get him ready for amputation. You heard that? Yes. Get him ready for amputation. I used to have a big knife, uh, and I got some pictures somewhere. The still guy on my side. I pulled my knife out, and I say, you're not going to cut my arm off. You, said, you, you, this is a Bowie knife, right? Yeah, like a big Jim Bowie knife. I, and you pulled the knife out? I pulled the knife out at the nurses and stuff. I say, you're not going to cut my arm off. I came over here with two arms, and I'm going back with two. So the guy that was in charge at the hospital, he became annoyed. He say, I guess this to convince me, take him to x-ray. They took me to x-ray. And when he took me to x-ray, 
two nurses came back and they looking at me. They had their mask on, like 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 I was smelling or something. But that was procedure, you know. Mm-hmm. They put the man had the mask on. They say, Sarge, say guess what? You're lucky. I said, Why you say that? We're not gonna have to amputate after all. I said, No, you're the one that's lucky because I gonna cut your head off. <laughs> they just laughed and went on, but. I got two arms and I'm happy. That's, I came that close to uh, being amputated, having my arm amputated. And I, I look at guys all the time. Right now I see a guy with one leg, uh, 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 one arm, one limb, and I feel like, well, maybe that didn't have to happen. Maybe there was a battlefield rush to judgment on a lot of Yes, yes, yes. And I think, uh, too, I think it would probably been easier to amputate it than to uh, treat it. Yeah, production line. Yeah. Keep it moving. Yeah, yeah. so. And I thank God for that because I got my arm back. I got my arm and, then, you know, that's what I'm here. Could you have come back home after having been wounded that severely? Yes, I could have. They gave me the opportunity to come home. And then again, I said, that was March 3rd, 1968. I didn't go over till December the 15th, 67. I wasn't scheduled to leave Vietnam until December the, in uh, 68. So I, I rejected the idea. I said, no, I want to go back to the field with my guys. Because I want to go back. I don't want to go home. Why did you want to do that? I didn't go back home because I know the guys at home said, well, you know, uh, they had to send a, a, a Warren home because he got wounded over there. He got messed up. He got wounded. I didn't want to hear all that. Okay. So I decided to stay back. And then I felt, too, that my guys was careless on the field. A lot of them was careless. And I felt that they wouldn't have survived if I hadn't been there. And I just felt that way. I was just that gung-ho to think that they needed me to keep them alive. So I went back to the field. And the rumors was already all over the place that they had cut my arm off when I got back to the unit. That preceded your return to the unit? That, that preceded. When I got to the unit, it was already out there that they had cut my arm off. So when you came back with two good arms, what did the boys say? They looked and say, <gasps> they looked at me, they say, Sergeant Warren, we heard you got your arm cut off. They cut your arm off. I said, well, I see. I got both of them. I said, "What do you see?" <laughs> Seeing is believing. So, you know, that happened, and I went back, and they allowed me to go back to the field because of my position, because I wasn't, you know, just every day uh, out in the field in the boonies and stuff like that. I used to, we used to do bridge sites and go out and, and guard the bridge sites at night, do the perimeters. So. Thank God for the guy that, the doctor that say, well, he can go back. So you were protecting engineers a lot of times by night. Well, mostly, or, mostly I was protecting the guys with the big guns, the artillery, okay. the 105 Hollisters, the 175, and uh, those type of things. At the bridge site, uh, during the day, we was going pull up at a position at the bridge, the pontoon bridges. Yeah. To protect the bridge, to keep them from blowing the bridge up, the enemy, so the convoys could come in and out. If they blow up the bridge, that 
couldn't get no supplies in. So that's what we were there during the day. And at, and at night, we would go back in and got the perimeter. And, got, and that's where they had the uh, big guns. Your concern when you were there was to save the lives or do your best to save the lives of your men. Yeah. Do you feel like you did that? I, I, I did it because uh, when I was there, I did not lose not one soldier. And, yeah, I think I did a good job with that. And I think they appreciate that. And I think they appreciated the fact that I was there to lead them. And uh, if I were to find them today and ask them that, they'll, I think I'm sure that they'll, that's what they'll tell you. Would they invite you to their home? I think all of them would. I believe that. I really believe, like now, even the ones that was talking crazy then, I think that they really understand what it is to be a soldier and what it's like for, you know, companionship. Yeah, I think so. Maybe in that sense, times have changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you come home, Mm -hmm. you go through Seattle, and -hmm. you encounter what a lot of other veterans did, regardless Mm -hmm. of their race. Mm Mm-hmm. People are calling you baby killer, and they're doing all that yes, stuff, right? Yes, yes, And that didn't matter what color you were when you came home. Everybody got that. Everybody got that, and everybody was going into, I went into the washroom. You saw uh, GI clothes everywhere. It was getting out of them and getting into to some civilian units. So did I. I put on some uh, civilian clothes, got out of my uniform. The only time I was really proud to wear my uniform was when I got back to Mississippi, and my parent, my relatives and stuff, they were glad to see me in uniform. But, yeah, it was a hassle. When you went to Mississippi, you, you came back to the States mm-hmm. with the Purple Heart, and I think you had a couple of Bronze Stars. Mm-hmm. Two Bronze Stars, yes. Two Bronze Stars, yes. Purple Heart. You mm-hmm. go back to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And do I understand this correctly? You went to a cafe at one point in time in Mississippi? <laughs> yeah. Tell me that story. Well, I it was a place called Durant, Mississippi. And Durant, that's where they caught the train. There's no longer catching the train there now, but at that time, in 1969, I went, uh, I was coming back to Chicago, and the buses was, I thought, was too slow, and there was nobody coming in the car, so I was going to go over to Durant to catch the train. When I got to Durant, there was this little cafe on the street, and I decided to go in, and I wanted me a hamburger. I went in to get a hamburger. People were working back there, was turning hamburgers and whooping them up, throwing them. People was coming in off the street, Caucasian people, white people, and walking right up. And I'm arguing with them, hey, I was snakes, I was snakes. They weren't paying me no attention. They, they, they acted like I wasn't there. So finally, I, I saw this something beckon in the, over in the door. And it was a big lady, Afro-American, kind of heavy, had on a, like a scarf like Angelima. And she was beckoning for me, pointing at me, telling me to come here. I'm like... Nah, I'm in line. I can't come see what you want. I'm going to lose my place. And people, it was like almost like lunchtime. People were steady coming in. They wouldn't pay me no attention, no way. You know? But when I finally decided to go over and see what she wanted, she grabbed me and picked me up and threw me down and got straddled me. She said, get out of there. That place is for white folks. You'll get killed in there. So I'm not thinking, uh, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I've been to Vietnam, I got wounded, I did all this kind of stuff, and you tell me, uh-uh, this is not. So I'm trying to get her off of me so I can go back in there 
and raise hell with the people that are in the place. Well, I didn't know who I was going to raise hell with. Uh, I guess anybody. So when she let me up and I, the train was coming. So my choice then was to either go back into the restaurant and maybe get left or either go get on the train. So I went and got on the train. Angry, but I got on the train. Were you in uniform? No, I don't think I was in uniform. I wasn't. You, uh, you, I wasn't in uniform. You think no. it would have served you if you were? I don't think so. Not that it should make any difference. Uh, well, yeah, but I, I doubt if I would have got served if I was in uniform. Yeah. That was 1968, Jerry. 1968. Yeah, 1968. Uh, I had another incident that happened in 1970. My baby sister got killed in Mississippi. My baby brother accidentally shot and killed my baby sister. I had a uh, 1966 Buick, and I went back to Mid Buick Riviera, and I went back to Mississippi. Me, my brother, my wife, and the whole family was there, and it was a nice-looking car. So driving, I got to Clarksdale, Mississippi. I say, fill it up. The guy, I guess he was the owner of the station, came out. We don't have no gas. I say, you don't have no gas, but everybody I look, and people started driving up getting gas. At that time, they had an attendant. A guy was pumping the gas, Afro-American. So I turned to him. I say, hey, man, I need a fill-up. The guy says to me, boy, did you hear what I said? We don't have no gas. I said, boy, I said, you must have all girls. That's the way I was talking to him. So by this time, my wife, my brother, and all of them, hey, come on, come on, come on. You're going to get this, you going to get in trouble. Come on. I said, man, please. So by this time, I looked up. The guy was on the phone. Next thing I saw was a lot of police lights flashing. They coming. So I said, well, I got my family here. Let me go ahead. I got in the car, put it in drive, took off. About four or five police cars behind me, lights flashing. The one car had his bumper all the way on my bumper. And I'm driving the speed limit, just barely driving the speed limit. He, he did that all the way out of the city limits in Clarksdale, Mississippi. I was on E. I was on uh, all the way on E. So I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to get to the next uh, to little town? So I would, what I did is the way I got to the next town where I speeded up, turned the car off, put the neutral in this coast, 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 coast. And so finally I made it to the next stop and filled up. You made it. I made it. But your anger gauge was yeah. completely full. Yeah, so that you know, that's what happened with that. And uh I guess I waited about twenty five, thirty more years before I even uh, went through Clarksdale. I wouldn't even go to Clarksdale no more. Angry, but that's what happened. I've done a lot of interviews with World War Two vets, African Americans oh, okay. who I've I've done some interviews with African-Americans who served in World War II, mm -hmm. but we know of the degrading, demeaning experience that they were exposed to. And it was blatant then. I mean, the segregation of the races and training only in certain areas mm -hmm. and you couldn't be in combat even though you were fully capable of being in combat and you wanted to fight for your country and you get dumped on in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you think that has changed. I mean, from a military perspective, I believe it has. Do you do you second that or no? 
you know, I think that it has changed. I think that most, for the most part, I, I don't think that the military can afford to have that going on because of, you know, now they got so many lawsuits, they got all kinds of stuff going on. And I think that the soldiers, even today, even uh, as I took the uh, the flight. Uh, honor flight? The honor flight. Veterans, uh, when it comes to veterans, veterans understand each other. And and I, I don't think that it's their fault how people acted or reacted there. And they understand the plight. Even in my uh, groups that I attend now, all of them are beautiful people. I got a lot of a lot of whites that are in the group, and they don't they don't show any difference. That you know they just they're just soldiers, old soldiers, and they understand what life is all about. So I I don't think that is ba- nearly it's not bad. It wasn't as bad in Vietnam. And maybe because I was in charge, but, <laughs> but I didn't see I didn't see anything that was blatant, not really. Well, from a military perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, you were a ranking African American back then. Yeah, there are a lot more yes. ranking yeah. uh, officers who right. are right. of color, and, and right. so that that may tend to make things a little bit different. Yeah, and I think it had a lot to do with uh, not understanding uh each person culture what the what they like and it's not i think it had, that had a lot to do with it they didn't understand them that's all yeah well it comes back to that whole comment you're okay but mm. only you maybe yeah the other yeah well yeah. Th- you know that part i didn't understand that part now that part made me oh that made me angry yeah yeah and even if i go somewhere else today and somebody make a statement like that i'll, I'll be very angry that that ticks me off you mentioned that you're dealing with the VA so we should point out that you still deal with PTSD oh yes 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 I deal with PTSD it's something I have to live with you know uh, sometimes people don't understand people that have gone through a lot and then I think a lot of times, it's not the person. It's not the person that's actually suffering from PTSD. It's the person that's listening to them and don't try to understand them. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe they're just incapable of understanding. The, yeah, that's true. That is so true. So that's where uh, there's differences. Uh, a lot of times, my wife, uh, <laughs> you, you know, be talking, and if I say something to her. I could, she'd go back in the phone, get on my, and talking to her sister or hers or somebody. Oh, girl, uh, he 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 he, he kind of going off. He he got PTSD, and and that's not good. But that's you know she she don't understand what we go through. Uh, I have had nightmares where I used to kick in, in in my sleep and almost kick her out the bed and stuff like that. Because I was dreaming and nightmares like, and then the enemy was coming in. Or, you know, we used to get hit all the time during tent offense with rockets and mortars. And when you hear a rocket or mortar coming in, you can hear it. If it's out there in the boonies, when they fire the wep- their weapons, you could see the, the flash from it. But if you don't hear nothing, 
that means that it's going to fall either somewhere in front of you. It's not over your head. The whistle, the, the whistling sound is the sound that's going over your head. It might not be that far over your head, but it's going. It's over your head. But when you see them being fired, you don't know where it's going to land on top of you or right in front of you. And that was scary. Do you still hear those sounds in your sleep? Do you have those dreams? Not as much. Uh, I used to. Uh, I used to be a time when I used to be like running, and it's almost like you, I could see the rocket or something coming in. I'm trying to get away from it in my sleep, but I always wake up before it hit. But it's chasing you. Yes. Yeah. When you get together in these sessions and you talk about this stuff with other vets mm-hmm. who maybe dealing with the similar issue, yeah, uh, it's freeing for you. Is it? It. it where are you in your in your attempt to get better? Well, you, you know what? I think it's, it's a relaxing thing. And that's why I want to be able to one day uh, have a building, uh, get a, a, a center where veterans can get together and talk. Because, you know, you think sometimes veterans think, be thinking and like they think that nobody going through this but them. But when you talk to other veterans... You realize this is wild, widespread uh, from guys that served in the war in Vietnam or whatever. So it's so relaxing. So, man, then a lot of times they can tell you how the best way to deal with it and handle it. But then even like me, like I've been married now for 56, almost 56 years. So, Yes, and I, I need to point out mm-hmm. that you are married to the woman who you thought was going to keep you from having to serve. Ernestine has been your wife for 56 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak nicely about her now. Yeah. Well, but, you know, still, (laughs) she don't understand uh, veterans. She don't understand whatever. Sometimes I don't like, I don't talk to people that don't understand what veterans is about, you know. Which is why it's important that you have an audience of veterans. Yes. In this, if you are able to they can see relate. your dream come true here. Yes, they can relate to what I'm saying. Well, you're partway to your dream already with a peace garden. Well, you know what? The peace garden is beautiful. And even now, I have a peace garden in right across over on Monroe. We have a veteran garden. I mean, a vet garden, a vet what we do, tomatoes and plants yeah, and stuff right. like that. And that's so peaceful. I'm only halfway away. But the building would definitely complete my dream because that way we could have all kind of veterans, all kind of veteran groups coming in. And even sometimes when they're having problems at home, like I say, we have a TV screen there and they come in and watch the football game or whatever, you know, and that's just beautiful. I wish you all the luck in the world on that project. Well, I, we're going to talk. you got a lot of work to do, we got a, Yeah, i got a lot of work to do. i got a lot of talking to do. i got a lot of convincing to do. And it's really needed here in the Austin community uh, because we get a lot of veterans that go back. And then also coming up with a plan, coming up with ideas. I've come up with some ideas that would be, that would actually support the building. So, and a veteran thing. So we, it's a dream. It's a dream. It's a dream, something to do, something to work on. All right. Yes. Good luck. Yes. Thanks for sharing with me. No problem. The Veterans Peace Garden where Jerry and I met is located in the 5400 block of Madison Street. 
It's a place of calm amidst the hustle and bustle of Chicago's Austin neighborhood. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org. 